Okay. So, hi. So, we have Paris on this call. Paris, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, sure. Um, so, yes, as, as, as Jesse said, I'm Paris. I'm a counseling psychologist and I'm co-founder um, at The Alternative Story, which is, um, you know, um, a Bangalore, Bombay and Delhi-based organization which provides uh, mental health services to individuals and organizations. Uh, and I know you do a great job because I've uh, literally referred you to like tons of people and everybody's been like, oh, it's great. So, uh, so oh, <laughs> what I would like to start off with is that like uh, some people, uh, so I asked some people uh, what they would like to hear about. And a lot of them have said that they would like to know, uh, they would like to demystify the experience of going to the therapist for the first time okay like what it is like right. from okay. your end like what is it like to take on a new client and like talk to them and like how do you make them feel at ease and like what are we supposed to look out for in a therapist and like one session doesn't really tell us much about the therapist red flags come up like later right. and uh, by then people yeah. are just like oh i don't want to go to therapy again i don't want to start over i don't want to tell my life stories again and like break down again so uh, yeah 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 so i, I think that's an excellent question uh, and then that's the reason why you know, we have a lot of info about what is the process of therapy what does therapy look like what, what should you expect in the first session and what you what should you expect on the first session across different mediums this is info we have on our website as FAQs, we have stuff on our Instagram and our social media, which helps people get an idea about therapy without getting to commit to a therapy session. And then secondly, um, sometimes it's not just enough to read info or watch a video. Uh, we have a, we both have an email as well as a telephone line where people can call for info and talk about their concerns and get the information about you know, what is therapy, how does therapy help, what would be a good fit for them in terms of the therapist, etc. before they make a decision about, um, you know, um, what to do in terms of their own concerns. And then when the person comes for therapy, I'm just going to talk about what I do. Is it, you know, it may be different from therapist to therapist. But for yeah, me, yeah. Um, I personally use, you know, a narrative method in terms of, um, interviewing. So I don't really like to stick with any kind of a pro forma or a sheet. Um, this, you know, I, I teach as well, so I know that students are usually taught to stick with this pro forma of history taking content and mental status examination and not this bunch of intimidating questions that you have to ask the client one after the other. We don't do that at the university. Like I said, I use a narrative approach, which means that I'm, I'm literally trying to understand the person's story. I think uh, the person in front of me is not somebody who is a source of data. I think the person is, um, you know, a living, breathing individual with their own story to tell me. So I literally start off with, you know, as somebody who hasn't met you or hasn't interacted with you before, uh, mm -hmm. please tell me your story. And, and so you can start off with wherever you want. Uh, but what I want to hear about is the important events in your life, the important people in your life, past and present, 
uh, the important themes or challenges that uh, you know you have uh, you think define your life and uh, why you are telling me about this journey i'd like you to tell me what uh, made you take this decision of coming to therapy that's that's usually how i uh, you know try to um navigate myself through the first conversation with the person and i think people uh, are more comfortable telling us stories rather than responding to questions in a very you know a very um, quantitative or very yeah. uh, rigid format we are very verbal culture we are storytelling culture so if i ask somebody tell me your life story or tell me your life journey i think it evokes much more you know of uh, of a response when me asking you a series of questions and it yeah. also tells you something about the power dynamic you know if i'm just asking you question after question you assume that that's your role in therapy to answer questions uh-huh. and the questioning will be done by somebody else. oh oh my god so i'm saying that tell me your story and uh, i'm i'm listening to your story then that changes the role of the therapist from uh, you know an interrogator to a witness and i'm a witness to your story and i'm trying to make sense of a narrative in a coherent manner and feel it that way you know so what i'm doing a lot in my first session is i'm basically doing a lot of what we call as reflection which basically mm-hmm. means putting out the feeling of from what the narrative is and a lot of clarification which is like a So you're telling me that when this incident happened in your life, it affected you like blah blah blah, you know. So just making those connections between incidents that the client is telling me and the impact that they have. So at the end of the session, you know, we have at least a concise understanding of what life has been like for this client and what are their current challenges, what are they currently faced with. um and i think this by the end of the session if the client feels comfortable enough to tell me that much about them and we understand where they are at the moment um the sessions to come uh, really help us go towards where we want to be going i, so I oh my god what the process of the first session oh my god that explains it so nicely and i i like i that 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 was really nice like the way you go about it um like what would um, but i would like to know like because like i stuck to my therapist for 5 years now i found a good therapist and i'm like dude i'm not letting go okay but like i hear a lot of horror stories through various conversations like what should they look out for like like because we are uh, like looking for something in our therapist as much as like the therapist is like gauging what uh what issues uh we have so like what are the things you can like look out for like red flags uh for a therapist like i know yeah. you'd be like shitting on your own <laughs> brethren but like yeah happily happily <laughs> because i think there are a lot of uh, people out there who are representing themselves as therapists and i'm i have no problem with somebody calling them tells uh you know an empathetic listener or anything like that but therapy is something which is a life uh you know skill and it is is something that you require training for so my first red flag would be somebody is ambiguous 
uh, about their training and their credentials. Uh, you need at least a postgraduate uh, qualification in counseling psychology, which has a practice component, which means that your therapist should have at least a postgraduate diploma or a postgraduate degree, which has an element of supervised counseling uh, as a trainee therapist. That should be the minimum qualification for the person to be, uh, you know, doing uh, any kind of therapy. I would, I would go far as far as saying that um, look at uh, somebody who has a master's degree in applied psychology, you know, yeah. specialization like the clinical psychology. So that's number one. But that's the bare minimum. I think the most important thing for me as a therapist to do is not just talk about my qualifications, but also talk about my my ideology and my politics. Because um, I, I mean, a lot of times as therapists, we are taught to say that we are neutral, we are value neutral, we are non-judgmental, but I think that's absolutely bullshit. Everybody is judgmental, everybody is ideological, everybody hmm. has a standpoint. So I think it's much better for me to talk about my politics and my stand. And, and and say that openly. Like I will say that you know that I that I am a man. I will say that I am a mental health user survivor myself. I will say that you know I am anti-car. I am anti-fascist. I am mm. um, you know I am pro-LGBT. I am uh, you know and then I identify poly and then I I, I identify as poly friendly. Thanks to the organization. Would just think aware, does not do any think of fetish shaming, uh, that, that our approach is not biomedical, but it is psychosocial and And that the view of the world and the view of mental health is an intersectional feminist. No, we, I, I will say these things because um, I don't want to firstly say that I'm neutral on these issues. And secondly, if there is somebody who um, you know, is going is afraid that they will be judged on the basis of their caste, on their on their sexuality, and gender, on the basis of their relationship orientation or their sexual preferences. Then me saying this already puts you at ease. It yeah. tells you that this is a space where um, these factors will not come in the way of your identity. In fact, these experiences will already make things to me as a therapist, you know, uh, and it's, it's much, it's kind of like going to a place where somebody um, understands your language, where a majority of people don't speak that language, you know, yeah. so the kind of, um, it's the kind of understanding that you would feel with somebody who understands your language in a language people usually don't, is what happens when a therapist usually talks about their policy. And, and this is where an important... Yeah, and this is where an important part about uh, caste and class privilege comes across as like uh, like yeah, like yeah. language, right? Like, like, like just language. Like we need somebody who can speak our mother tongue where we can like talk in our mother tongue. For me, English has always been my first language so it's easier for me to talk in English and express myself but that is not the case for so many people who need uh, help like professional help and they are like where will I find somebody who speaks my language and who understands me 
and again like i uh, like uh, so many therapists are so privileged in terms of caste that they can barely understand the caste struggle that they can barely understand where it is coming from but i do know there are platforms right now who are doing great work in terms of like uh, uh, anti caste uh, like uh, psychology and like anti caste uh, therapy and that's that's like i i am so glad that you guys are there and i see that you are openly saying you're like uh if you don't think shame you don't uh, shame sexualities uh, nothing of that sort and i think it's very important for people to actually ask their therapists about their views about their world views about their uh, like what their ideals are so that they don't end up in a position where they are they build that trust with that therapist and then the therapist judges them and then they're like broken they just crushed because the kind of trust we build with therapists and the kind of things we actually exchange with our therapists that relationship is so sacred that relationship should come with like no biases and no judgment like i used to be afraid to tell my therapist certain things and uh, one day like i just told him this the most like i thought he would judge me the most for that and he didn't and that's what made me feel so safe and so secure that i can really tell this person anything so like everybody deserves that kind of therapy so like before you go to a therapist like uh, ask them about their basic values and like their world views and that's so important and like oh my god parasi ha huh? hello i think that that's on me as a therapist to make you comfortable as a client yes um uh, parus we've been talking for a while now i think we got the essentials of like what most people ask but like they were also asking like uh, have you seen a difference in like uh, people's mental health during like covid times and the pandemic and have i i'll tell you what i have noticed i have noticed that people who were already anxious like me like we were constantly anxious our life became a little easier because we didn't have to travel to work and other things people who were like extroverted and like neurotypicals right they their life suddenly turned upside down and i saw a lot of mental health issues born out of uh, economic struggles born out of uh, like people losing their jobs people losing their routine people not being outside enough like people losing touch with other people not being able to meet up and i saw this happen and like somehow neurodivergent people and people with mental illnesses just like coped a little better like it, it was weird like yeah uh, yeah. yeah no i i i completely agree with you and i definitely uh, agree that that was the case during the strictest part of the lockdown look when when we had the national lockdown and we couldn't go out of your house uh that was definitely something which i saw that uh, new divergent uh, were were dealing with much better because suddenly uh, nobody was telling us to get out of the house go meet people um you know get some fresh air it was it was actually the right thing to do to stay at home and not meet anybody and stay this permanently but um i think um, but uh, as the pandemic has progressed and things have opened up so I I don't um, I I think things are coming back to how they used to be because now um, people are being expected to 
come back uh, to their workplaces with the same amount, with actually a greater amount of risk than usual. Like now, earlier, if you told an anxious person to come to the workplace and they were afraid of getting out of the house, people could tell them that, okay, you know what, you're just being irrational, nothing's going to happen, etc. But now there is a real reason. Like, you know, we're not going to get vaccinated for a while, but workplaces in many cases are expecting people to come back. Like I was talking to a client the other day, uh, and especially those who are working in the educational sector. I don't know why, but in the educational sector, there is there's this rush to resume offline classes, especially in schools where you know where you have kids. Um, so I, I think initially in the lockdown, definitely you know neurodivergent folks found it easier, but uh, we were hoping that this would make working from home. Uh, a regular thing, but it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. At least in a country like India, a lot of the you know Western countries and then corporates are seeing are going work from home first. But a lot of the sectors here are expecting people to come into the workplace while putting themselves at risk, and that's that's quite unfortunate, honestly. Yeah. So uh, the thing is uh, that. Uh, uh as a neurodivergent person i would say that uh like the the way work from home was uh like uh, applied and like everybody uh, just went into that mode it just made me feel like somebody with a psychiatric disability and seeing other people with uh, like physical disabilities and psychiatric disabilities struggle to go to work every day i feel like this could have been done before and this should be the norm and like like these alarms could yeah. have been made before like it could have been done like so what are you telling yeah. us that uh, that like when Absolutely. everybody's life comes to it you are okay to make these uh, changes but when it comes to making changes for like neurodivergent people or like people with physical or psychiatric disabilities you just don't have the bandwidth to do that like what does that tell you about yeah, how we are seen yeah, it, it just tells you that there's not enough of a business case for it, right? Yes. Uh, that's the that that's what it boils down to him at the end of the day. There's not enough uh, economic sense for things to go virtual. There's not enough economic sense to provide uh, um, you know uh, digital tools for learning and for meeting and for work which are accessible and affordable unless it's a pandemic. I mean, let's be honest. All the Googles and the Zooms and the Microsofts of the world made their services affordable and free during this time because there was uh, a huge potential to onboard millions of people, which they could later monetize once people yeah. are used to it. Nobody did this out of the goodness of their heart. It's not that you know uh, Facebook and uh, and then and Amazon wanted to come to our rescue during a crisis. Um, <laughs> so I think what it tells us always is exactly as you said that you know. When it was everybody's, when it was the neurotypical and able-bodied uh, folks who were at risk, it made sense to make all of these measures the norm. And uh, w- once again, when it makes sense to not do it anymore, the norm will change. Yeah. I, and, and I think that's that's how it's always been, and that's that's why it's always that's how it's always going to be. So I don't really, I mean, I'm not under this illusion that. Uh, the the pandemic has uh, shifted working practices for good. I don't think that that's something that's going to uh, go on pretty much. I, I think 
now even more so it's going to become you know difficult because i'm already seeing that people are going back to work to jobs where they are being paid lesser than what they are being paid oh yeah people yeah 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 people in the pandemic are working at while are working at are working at jobs where they made 50% or 70% of their uh, you know previous salaries just so that they have employment yeah you know uh, so is so that is the other thing right responding... yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. you haven't seen the corresponding you haven't seen a corresponding reduction in other the reduction in other costs of living like yeah, yeah. like your landlords are charging you lesser. yeah 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 uh so so the other thing is that like uh, the mental like mental health problem right now in india is so rooted in ha- the economics of the country in the caste uh, casteism and misogyny in patriarchy in like all the things uh, that are wrong in this country our mental health is so tied to that that like no matter how, how many therapists you go to some problems are like so fundamental that such fundamental things need to change for us to yep. have a better quality of mental health in this country and like that is yep. that such a big thing okay uh part of mm-hmm. we've been yeah. talking for quite no, a while now yeah uh, no yeah. you wanted to say like i'll let you finish i just wanted to add i just wanted to add that you know that what you're saying is actually confirmed by research and uh, that you know only about 60% of the mental health challenges in india are caused by mental illness the remaining 40% are caused by all of these economic social political factors i mean so there is actually research data backing what you are yeah oh my god hello Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I love that yeah, research course, data course. backs up whatever I said. Like, I just said it from my own like uh, observations. I was like, this is it, man. So, anyway, Paris, we've been talking for a really long time, and I've had such a lovely conversation with you. Like, oh my god, uh, thank you for doing this, Paris. Like, I know you have like a very busy schedule, and like, thank you for doing this. And I'm sure the listeners will love this, and like, whatever listeners I have. Uh, they will love this and uh, thank you paris so uh, we shall call it a day bye bye glad to be here thank you bye bye bye